Well, glad to have everyone here tonight. Uh, thank you guys for the music. It was good to spend some time singing together. Um, and if you have your Bibles tonight, which hopefully you do when you come to Bible study, it's a good thing to bring your Bibles. Uh, turn to the book of 1 John. We finished uh, the book of Malachi. We've been going through that for a while. Well, that started before, before COVID uh, in my Sunday school class, and then we continued it here on Wednesday nights, and we, we got finished with that last week. And uh, so tonight we're starting in uh, the book of 1 John in the New Testament, which uh, almost all the way to the end uh, of your Bibles. And I'm excited to be studying through 1 John and learning, and then uh, hopefully we can do the same together here, uh, spend time learning together. And for anybody that's watching at home, um, we're grateful for your participation in, uh, in the content that we're putting out for you. We want everybody to stay uh, focused on, on God and, and continuing to grow spiritually and in the Word of God, uh, even when we can't quite meet as we would really like to. But uh, So I'm grateful for everybody that's here tonight. I want to start by um, reading a first section here um, in First John, and then I'll get into my um, introduction, which probably tonight is going to be introduction. So, but I want to read the passage just to to uh, have that have that read out and, and in our hearing, and then as we look at the introduction tonight, you'll. You'll hear some of the reasons, uh, as I explain some of the things that were going on in the church there, you'll hear some of the reasons in John's writing why he had to write what he did. So let's just read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 tonight, okay? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. We, we thank you for uh, more opportunity to get together as Christians, to open up your word and hear what, what you have said, uh, and tonight through uh, the Apostle John. And Lord, as uh, we're, we're grateful for the time that we had in Malachi and all that we learned there, and as we get into this uh, book of 1 John, Lord, we ask that you would use this study time or to continue sanctifying us in the truth of your word as we, as we gather together, as we discuss things, uh, that you would open our hearts, our minds to receive the truth of your word and teach us through your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for our salvation that is found in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, and just a reminder that uh, when we go through this study, there will be times perhaps when I'll ask a question, and that's open to everybody, so feel free to, to answer and kind of speak up a little bit if I can hear, and then uh, I'll try to repeat the question so that people at home can, can get context of what's being asked uh, or what's being answered um, when you answer a question. 
Um, and then at the end, uh, like we've been trying to do, we're going to have time for a bit of Q&A uh, after the session tonight. You don't have to stay for that, but for anybody that would like to stick around and ask questions and things that we can discuss, uh, Brandon's here. We'll, we'll share that responsibility of uh, being able to interact with you guys that way. So we'll look forward to that. Um, so I want to express at the beginning here that my introduction to the book of 1 John is pretty long. Uh, so we probably won't get into the text that we just read out in terms of a, a focus on it and a, and a study through it tonight. But I hope you're okay with that. We're, we're still going to be looking at different scriptures uh, and talking about biblical truths tonight in order to have the stage set or have context to um, what is going on in the church in John's day and why he's writing what he wrote to the church. It's absolutely... Um, valuable for us today uh, to be reading these things because some of the same issues are, are present in our day and age as well. And, uh, and, and like I said, um, you know, we're shortening the, the teaching time a bit so we can have time for Q&A at the end. So um, anyway, so as I researched the book of First John, uh, it became clear to me that to, a couple of things stuck out right away that seemed to be... Um, the source of some level of debate, um, and by that I don't mean to imply that we should doubt anything here with the scriptures, uh, that's not what I'm talking about, um, but just that sometimes it's good to look at the issues that the church has already worked through in, in church history, the things that they've already encountered and had to work through, and, and we'll see some of that here tonight, And because as the church works through things in, in our past, they, they get, they're settled on issues. And things go well for a while, and then as the church may drift away, um, sometimes things have to be brought back, but we don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Um, when, when issues uh, in the church have been dealt with, then it's good to go back and look and see uh, what the church came up with. Uh, and uh, these things I'm going to talk about right here are, of course, not the most important things about this letter, but there's something to make some basic observations about. And what I'm referring to is the subject of the authorship of the letter and the date in which the letter was written. Um, so let's talk about the date briefly. Um, there is, like a lot of the books of the Bible, no date and time stamp on the front page that says this was written August 1st, you know, you know, 85 AD. Okay, we just, we don't have that. Um, and... So some books of the Bible, they're pretty specific with time frames in the text of, of the passages, making it clearer when it was written. Others, like 1 John, are a little more vague. Um, and we use subject matter, uh, events described in the text, people mentioned in the text, previous writings from certain authors, and other things to try to determine when, when uh, a book of the Bible was written. And... Uh, I think we could safely say about the book of 1 John that, and I think confidently that it, this letter was written in the, in the late first century sometime, but to get much more specific is sort of difficult. Regarding the date, there's a, a wide range of thoughts, and I saw views anywhere from 68 to 69 AD to 80 to 85 AD, and from 90 to 95, even one up to 110 AD. So there's a wide range of thought on when this letter was written by John. Um, and it's important for us to remember, we need to remember, that 
believing any one of those dates, you know, one person holds, well, I think it was 80 to 85, or I think it was 90 to 95. Um, holding any one of those particular dates does not change the content of the letter or the truth that's being put forth in the letter. We need to be reminded of that. So people can differ on those kinds of things based on their study, and it's okay. It doesn't change the truth of the Word of God that we'll be, that we'll be looking at. Um, so I don't think it's of major importance to take a particular stand uh, on, a, on a, a particular date. Um, and so that's, it's just difficult to kind of nail down when exactly it was written. But it's in the, in the late first century sometime. Um, John was an old man, probably in his 80s when he wrote this letter, most likely from the city of Ephesus. Um, he, he had written his gospel, the gospel of John, between 80 and 90 A.D., and if you remember John, what he wrote in the Bible, he has, you have the Gospel of John, you have the, the three epistles, uh, first, second, third, John, and then you have the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation, all written by the Apostle John. And uh, some believe he wrote this letter before uh, he wrote the Gospel of John. Um, kind of like the date thing, there's no real proof of that, it's based on people's study and what they think about it and those kinds of things. Again, it doesn't change the content or the truth of any of those um, books, depending on when you date it as being written. It's estimated that around 80% of the verses in 1 John are similar to or reflect concepts in the Gospel of John. Okay, that, that's quite a bit of this, this letter that is sort of attached to the Gospel of John in terms of those uh, concepts that John wrote about, um, which is one of the things that leads me to believe that this, um, this letter was written after the Gospel of John. Okay? Um, on the subject of the authorship of this letter, um, this letter, like, unlike a lot of the letters in Scripture, doesn't have like a greeting at the beginning where the author identifies himself, like sometimes Paul does. You know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, writing this letter to this place. You have who wrote it and where they're writing it to. We don't really have those specifics in, in the book of 1 John that, that inform us of that. And it's sort of like the book of Hebrews. Um, it's, it's the same kind of, kind of issue there. Um, however, the authorship of the book of 1 John isn't in dispute. It's really not in dispute. Okay, So I, I don't bring that up to say that we should be, we should be really concerned if, whether John wrote this or not. That's not what I'm, what I'm talking about. Just the fact that, unlike a lot of the other letters, we don't have something right at the beginning saying, this is who's writing this. Uh, <clears throat> there were those, of course, that tried to attribute it to other people, perhaps. But there are many reasons why this letter is attributed to John. Even though it doesn't say John wrote this, um, it's, it's attributed to John. Some of the reasons um, are because of the similarity in writing, um, like I said a minute ago, between this and the Gospel of John, which uh, there's no doubt that the Gospel of John was written by John. Um, and so there's a similar writing style. There's a similar use of vocabulary. Um, and so when compared to the Gospel of John, there's a lot of similarities. And so I wanted to look at some of those as an example of this. Um, so if you want to Follow along as I, as I mention a passage of Scripture. I'm going to go kind of quickly through these, so 
if you're a fast flipper in your Bible, then you can feel free to try to keep up. But, uh, so I want to look at four examples of this kind of comparison between 1 John and the Gospel of John. Um, and so regarding, the first one I'm going to look at is 1 John 1, 4, and as compared to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 11. Okay, and this is regarding the uh, joy being complete. Okay, and so listen to the similarities here. So 1 John 1, 4 uh, says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Okay, and then regarding God sending his only begotten son. Okay, John, in the Gospel of John, penned one of the most famous verses about uh, the coming of the Son of God. Uh, so I want to look at the comparison here. Look at 1 John 4.9 as compared to John 3.16. 1 John 4.9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And then John 3.16, of course, everybody knows, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, and then um, I'm going to look at 1 John 3.8 and the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44. And this is in regard to the deeds of Satan. Okay, and, and so in 1 John 3.8, it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then John 8.44, <clears throat> we have Jesus talking to the religious leaders uh, and saying something very similar as John writes the account of that. John 8.44 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. <clears throat> and then next, um, the last example I want to look at is regarding, regarding the fact that nobody has seen God. We, we see that in, in both places here, okay? 1 John 4, 12, and then we'll look at John 1, 18. 1 John 4, 12 says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, same thing. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay, these are just four examples. There are many, many examples of the similarities in wording um, and, and um, concepts and um, truths that are brought out in the book of 1 John <clears throat> and the Gospel of John that show uh, the fact that it's John is the author of the book of 1 John. And all the way back to the, the second century, uh, the church identified the author of this letter as the Apostle John. Okay, so we're looking back at the church itself and what they have historically agreed upon, which is that John, the apostle, is the author of First um, John. And I think, uh, most importantly, by a man named uh, Irenaeus, who, 
who in his own writings quoted from the book of 1 John and identified the Apostle John as the author of 1 John. And why is that significant? Who's this Irenaeus guy? Well, Irenaeus was a disciple of a man named Polycarp. Okay, think about this for a minute. Irenaeus sat under Polycarp. Polycarp sat under the teaching of John, the apostle himself. Okay, so it's only one person removed there. So he, if anybody would know, Polycarp would know that John was the author of 1 John, and he would teach that to his disciple, Irenaeus. Okay, so it's not even like generations have passed, and, and then we find this out. It's, it's coming from, and being, he's being identified as the author by, by firsthand accounts uh, of people. Okay, um, And so we would join with Irenaeus and, and the closed canon of Scripture and the vast majority of Christian history up to that point in identifying the author of this letter as the Apostle John. Okay? We can trust looking back at church history and who they identified as the author. And it's, it's in this canon of Scripture. It's in our Bibles. It literally says 1 John that's not inspired, you know, putting the words 1 John on the page isn't inspired scripture. But it shows that at the, the earliest of times when they put together the canon of scripture, John was already identified as the author of the book of 1 John. Okay? Um, and regarding the content of the letter, something I want us to understand right away was, uh, is that we learn from, we can learn from the many contrasting statements that John makes in this letter. These are sometimes understood wrongly, though, leading people to believe uh, they, they are Christians when they're not. Okay, so they can take the writings of John here and all these contrasting statements he makes and determine they're Christians when they're really not. And you, as you read through it, you might think, how, can they, how is that possible? It seems so, so clear what John is saying, what he's doing here by making the points he makes. But as soon as you twist one thing, the rest of your understanding of that book is off. Okay? And that's what, that's what was going on. It goes to the reasons why John wrote this letter in the first place. Like much of the New Testament, 1 John has a focus on ridding the church of false teaching. Um, on proving what true Christianity looks like. Okay? That's a major focus in this, in this book. Also, Anchoring the church in the truth is a focus. And then giving assurance of salvation and thereby bringing hope and joy to true Christians. Right? When we are assured of our salvation by the very word of God, we can have joy and, and we can trust that. Okay? And that's some of the reasons why this book is written. And if you go through the, Old, the New Testament, many, many of the books are addressing these things. The false teaching and as compared to the truth and giving assurance to those who are in Christ. Um, now, on the wrong side of things, this letter is sometimes thought to be portraying the contrast between two different kinds of Christians. Okay? So, for example, 1 John 3.14, if you look there. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Okay, they, they will say that uh, this isn't a reference to a person's conversion. Uh, they'll say that 
in the Christian life, there is a sphere of light and a sphere of darkness. And so that the one mentioned here that's abiding in death uh, is just a Christian who's in a sphere of darkness, not really living the Christian life as he should. You know, some people may call it, say he's a backslider or something like that. But, but this, a false understanding of this is that the, the distinctions that John makes in here are just talking about some Christians are up here and some Christians are down here at this level, but they're both Christians. Okay, but that's not what's going on here. And we, we should not understand the book of 1 John to be, to be doing that. Um, the verse that we read there, and all the other contrasting verses in the letter, they're clearly about people passing from lostness into a place of eternal life. It's talking about salvation. You know, you were this, you are now this. Um, it's not Christians that are just on different levels, okay? Um, it's not about great Christians and subpar Christians. Uh, it's about the truth that that many who profess to be Christians are not. And there's a way that we can know. And John deals with that in here. So John very clearly gives many points of evidence, uh, or uh, what we would say of the fruit of what a true Christian looks like. We'll see a lot of that as we, as we go through this. And the divisions um, that John makes are, are cause for professing Christians to do what Paul tells the Corinthians to do. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, if you remember where he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? Okay, so there's... Though, though some would deny it, the Scripture... Uh, scriptures are full of verses that instruct us that not only are there false Christians, but we should examine ourselves against the truth of Scripture to see whether or not we're in the faith. That's what Paul is talking about, about that there. And it's not so that we can, we can live in fear every day, having to um, recheck things every single day. Oh, no, am I not saved today? Okay, that's not what this is talking about. Okay, It is that... Not so that we can be in fear, but that as Christians that we can actually be assured of our salvation. It's a, it's a good thing. Um, but let me, let me use John's own inspired words to make the point that this is about true and false conversion. And here's what John says about why he wrote this very letter in the first place. If you look over at 1 John 5.13, um, flip over a page and you'll see 1 John 5.13. <clears throat> He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's encouraging to believers, to Christians. Okay, another purpose for this letter, also inseparably attached uh, to true and false conversion, is that John was going after... um, and refuting a relatively new heresy making its way into the early church. And that is the false teaching of the Gnostics, okay, known as Gnosticism. You've probably heard that word before. Um, and it would take a long time to go into a lot of depth about the Gnostics and what they believe, but uh, 
I do want to touch on it briefly because John goes after it almost immediately in chapter one of this book. Uh, and it's something that, again, like I said before, the church is faced with today. This is still, it's still a false teaching. It's still around today. It hasn't gone away. Okay. <clears throat> and there, there are different ways that the New Testament authors, as you'll know, that they go after false teaching. Okay. Sometimes they say flat out what the false teacher is teaching, and they tell you, don't believe that. Okay? Here's what they're teaching, don't believe that. And sometimes they tell you what the false teaching is, and then they tell you what the truth is, so that uh, you'll turn from that false teaching. Okay? Because you have both of them before you, I'm turning from that, I'm going back to this one. And another way is when the author makes truth statements to the church, okay, Truth statements about God, about salvation, whatever the subject may be, it is the truth. And so they'll make those truth statements to the church, knowing that they've been believing lies, okay, so that they'll internally compare the truth statement to the lies they've been believing, and again, turn back to the truth. And I think that's what's going on here in First John, as we'll, as we'll see as we get into it, that he doesn't necessarily say, hey, these guys over here, they're teaching X, Y, and Z, but he says flat out, boom, here's the truth. And so to the Christian hearing that, who maybe has been believing some of this false teaching, they got some self-examination to do. Say, so here's the apostle writing to me saying, here's the truth. I've been believing this. Uh, I need to repent. I need to come back to the truth. Okay, so he, he makes some early on, some strong truth statements um, about Christ himself and to refute this, this false teaching. Um, and so, in the Greek word, in talking about the Gnostics, the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. So the Gnostics were those with supposed special knowledge, okay, that it was really a mixture of paganism, uh, pagan mysticism, and Greek philosophy, uh, you know, basically people saying, well, I think this, well, I think that, okay? That doesn't end up, that never ends up well. Uh, they said that salvation came by a secret and superior knowledge that's only given to special people, only given to those who are initiated, okay? Uh, so think about that. Salvation came by secret, superior knowledge. They considered all matter to be evil, and spirit to be good. Okay, so uh, that translates to your body, evil. Uh, your spirit, good. Okay, your body may sin, but your spirit can't be touched by sin. So don't worry about judgment. Okay, don't you don't have to worry about about judgment. Um, you can you can start to hear in there the releasing of responsibility for our sin. Okay, um, And it can start sounding familiar to us, for one thing, because we live in a place with all kinds of New Age belief systems, uh, and this can sound familiar, talking about spirit and body and all this stuff. Um, but that's, this is what the Gnostics were doing. Um, Bible commentator David Hebert said this about the Gnostics. The Gnostics, meaning knowing ones, held that spiritual excellence consisted not in a holy life, but in their superior knowledge, 
which enabled them to rise above the earthbound chains of matter in their apprehension of the heavenly truth that had been made known to them. This knowledge, they claimed, had been made known to them through Christ as the messenger of the true God. Thus, the Gnostic Christ was not a savior, he was a revealer. He came for the express purpose of communicating his secret gnosis or knowledge. Okay, so question. What does this belief do to the biblical teaching on sin and atonement? If you're believing what the Gnostics are teaching, what does that do to the biblical teaching about sin and atonement? Makes it useless. You're talking about atonement? Okay. Okay, so if you, if you believe that, then you can figure it out on your own, do it on your own. Any other thoughts on that? Personal responsibility goes away. It, you know, matter is doing the bad things, and that, that may be done away with. I don't have to worry because my spirit can't be touched by that. So sin really isn't sin, and I don't need atonement, so it makes it useless. So anybody saying, well, Christ came, died for your sins, he atoned for your sins, why, I don't, I don't need that. Why would I need that? So it does away with that. You can see how, how dangerous this is. Um, Jesus didn't come to, to die for your sins, but to give certain people a special knowledge. Okay? Only, he's only a revealer and not a savior, because there's no mention of sins needing to be paid for. Uh, and this, therefore, the result of it is to keep people where? In their sins, right? Sins are not forgiven. They're, if they're believing this, they are in their sins. And if they die believing this, they die in their sins. Um, it's, it's a terrible thing. Gnosticism had, its, had alternative views as well. So there was a, a docetic Gnosticism held that Christ merely seemed to have a human body. Okay, it's all attached to the same belief that matter is evil, spirit is good. Okay? So they held that Christ just seemed to have a human body. His supposed humanity was a, a phantom. Okay? Um, so you see, Christ, when you hold to their belief system, Christ could not have had a truly physical body because matter is evil. Thus, that would have made Christ evil. So they have to follow their logic down, down the line. There was a, uh, a Serinthian Gnosticism, named after Serinthus. A late, uh, he was a late contemporary of John at Ephesus. So, I mean, this goes way back. It's during the time of John. And this taught that the man Jesus, he was the son of Joseph and Mary. He was, was more righteous and wiser than other people. Okay, but that the Christ, or the Messiah, came on him at his baptism and empowered his ministry and stayed with him throughout his ministry and then left him at the crucifixion so that the, the man that died on the cross was just a man. Okay, He's just a man who died and rose again somehow. It's very strange, but you can see the problems with it. You know, what are the problems with that? How do those beliefs contradict the biblical teaching about Jesus? 
What are your thoughts on that? How does, how does what we just talked about there contradict what the Bible teaches about Jesus? The grave wouldn't be empty? Right. Yeah. There would be no resurrection? Okay. What else? Yeah. Absolutely. It it does away with the incarnation of Christ. It it just does away with it. How important is the incarnation of Christ? Extremely. <laughs> Extremely. Okay? Uh, it's an attack to believe this is an attack on the deity of Christ. Okay, which Paul dealt with in many of his letters. There's always been attacks on the deity of Christ, and that's what this Gnosticism was. Also, it was an attack on the deity of Christ. He, he was not God. He couldn't have been God. God could not have come and put on flesh because that's evil. Okay? Um, so if you hold to these views, it also does away with and, and invalidates the atoning work of the cross, like Matt said earlier. Same thing. It just does away with it. Um, so what does this do? If you hold to these beliefs, then, what does it do to the gospel? In effect, what does this do to the gospel? It makes it of no use. It removes the power of the gospel. And the scripture says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so this belief to hold to this would do away with that. Um, make it of no use. And these beliefs were leading people in the church to engage in other things like asceticism, okay, or punishing your evil flesh. Your body is evil, remember? Uh, it's matter. So you punish that flesh to free the good, which is the spirit. Okay? So you have people being harsh to their bodies, doing things to, to get rid of this flesh or to, to punish the flesh. And these are things that Paul went after with the Colossian church because they were submitting to them, themselves to human regulations and supposed Things, things that were supposedly helping them to deal with their sinful flesh. In Colossians 2.23, Paul said, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can beat yourself all you want. Okay? It's not going to change the fact you're a sinner. It's not going to keep you from sinning. We need a Savior. We need Christ to... Uh, to have paid for our sin. So he said that they, are, they, they have an appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value. And that's what's going on. These philosophizers and people sitting around talking about, well, I think this and I think that. And they're just, it's foolishness. Okay, they're, they're not attached to the scriptures, to the truth of the word of God. Uh, and again, the worst thing about these False teachings here is that they keep people in their sins. There is no salvation in this. It's just the ideas of man. There was another extreme that people went to in the false teaching of Gnosticism, and that was to go all the way to licentiousness. That is, to live any way you want. Because the body is matter, matter is evil, uh, but the spirit is good. Remember, In other words, do whatever you want, live however you want, because your spirit is good. Why does that sound familiar in our time? 
because it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's like the world's philosophy. Uh, it's how the world lives. Uh, and it's not a surprise that the world would live that way, but, like, but in John's day, for this to be creeping in and be accepted into the church, you can see why his concern and why he has to write the letter that he does. This should not be accepted by professing Christians. The Bible describes this as a perversion of the grace of God and an outright denial of Jesus Christ. In Jude 1.4, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality or licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that they're saying, I deny Jesus. They may even claim Jesus. But the fact that they're living in this way is a denial of of our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, You can see the problems John was addressing in the church. The seriousness of the damage that this false teaching had the potential to do and was doing in some cases. So he wrote this letter. And we'll see that in the process of attacking the false teaching, John teaches the church, teaches us, vital doctrinal truths about sin and Satan and eternal salvation, the deity of Christ, the eternality of Christ, the love of God, brotherly love. Um, And also teach us about um, assurance and perseverance. There are many, many good um, assurances, things that bring us joy and assurance in the book of First John as Christians. Um, and this book is, um, is good. It, it's really good. It's so important, so vital for Christians in every generation. Like I said, we still have today a lot of the things that they were dealing with in the church back then. So it's just as vital today. And the things John says here are in this book are pretty plain, but we sometimes don't want to accept them uh, I think because it divides people. Okay, it, it, what he writes in here divides people, and but isn't that what God Himself is doing throughout all of human history? Is making a division between good and evil, a division between His people and the world. I mean, off the top of your head, can you think of passages uh, in Scripture that that show a division of people that God is making? Any any passages you can think of? Okay, in Leviticus. Israel and the world. God's laying out all his laws, all the regulations, all for the purpose of separating his people from the world. Um, Going longer than I thought. Um, So I I just wanted to read a couple of verses here in Matthew 25, just for an example, and reminder about this separation. Matthew 25 And look at verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay? Um, And then, down in 41, he'll say, it says, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
And verse 46 says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's an absolute separation there. Yeah. Uh, yep, that's what, that's what it's about, separating the sheep and the goats. Um, there's other passages, wheat and tares, um, all kinds of other scriptural passages showing there's this division. It's Old Testament and New Testament. God is always about separating out his people because that's how his son is separated out. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This also describes the person who's born again in Christ Jesus. They have been separated out from the world. As we'll see in this book, all the contrast between darkness and light and things like that. There, there's many examples in here of this separation. Um, and it should bring fear to the unbeliever, but also assurance and joy to the true Christian because of the understanding God gives to know his son to eternal life. And the words in this letter are amazing. And Martin Luther had this to say about 1 John. I have never read a book written in simpler words than this one, and yet the words are inexpressible. And, and this is how John ends this letter, with that kind of assurance for you uh, and me as Christians. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And those are some of the things that we'll be looking at here in the book of 1 John. As John attacks the false teaching, and in the, in the process of attacking the false teaching, he is teaching the church what is true and right. And he starts out with talking about Christ himself and how the church should view Christ in chapter 1. And that's what we'll see next time we come together. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you for the time that we had to look at this introduction to 1 John. Father, this, this book is full of so much that for us as Christians is encouraging, um, reassuring, and helpful, and brings us joy. And I pray, Lord, that you would ground us in that. Father, that we would have understanding of, of your word as, as John wrote it for us, inspired by, by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you again for opportunity that we can open up your Bible and study and learn. Thank you, Lord, that though we deal with the same issues today, we certainly don't have to go searching and reinvent the wheel on how to handle, how do we handle this false teaching? We go right back to your word, Lord, and we be grounded in the truth of who you are, who Christ is, how salvation comes about, and we, and we put our faith and trust in Christ alone, Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.